morning, Southbridge. I'm glad that you're here. I hope that you're glad you're here. Thank you so much for choosing to be here this morning. If this is your first time here, we're glad that you've chosen to take a chance at a church that meets at a movie theater. We hope that you feel welcome. We'd love to know how you found out about Southbridge, so if you'd be open or inclined, could you please fill out the connection card, which you can find inside your worship folder? You can take that out to the first-time guest. He asked where we have a gift for you, but if that's too scary or whatever, you can just drop it off in the offering boxes. And uh, for our church family, um, today is the last week of our fiscal year, so if you're inclined to giving to support the ministry that you're a part of, um, that would be, today would be a great day to do that. This morning we're continuing our series, Red Letters, as you heard Howard Wilcox, a member of our church, read the scriptures for it. I could listen to that all day. Woo! We should just do that one morning. This morning we're continuing that series, we're looking at various commands of Christ. We know there's over 300 different written commands, maybe boiled down to 50 different ones, but we have 14 weeks this summer, so we've been looking at that. And before we move forward in that, we'll be in Matthew chapter 6 this morning, I just want to take a moment and just say something um, maybe a bit pastoral, but have you experienced um, the last few weeks trouble in your mind? When you look at the world around, you know, church isn't supposed to speak about a couple things, uh, politics, sex, and money, and Southbridge does speak about each of those things every once in a while, Jesus even more so than us. And when you think about such things in our world, are you troubled? You know, Jesus tells us that in this world we're going to have trouble. And I just want to encourage you that when you look at the things of this time, and our times are unique to us, but they're not unique to all times, I believe, that trouble's always existed since sin has come into the world. A few weeks ago, we see our brothers and sisters in Charleston, uh, suffer in their church body with the loss of the murder of um, their loved ones and friends, family. And then we get worried and worked up, many people do, about um, the politics of our, of our world. And I just want to encourage you that um, the Lord has his hands on the parameters of all things. So you can, you can trust in him. You don't, have to, you don't have to worry. Isn't it true that the scriptures tell us that the Lord establishes kings and kingdoms? Kingdoms rise and fall. There's no promise that because we live here that this place endures for all time. Rome, Babylon, whatever. So our hope and our trust is is in the Lord, loved ones. And let's not allow the times to dictate our mission. And what is the mission of the believer? It's what we actually began the series with, and that is that disciples would make disciples to teach others to obey all the commands that Christ had given so that they in turn make disciples, and that's the plan. But I just want to give you an encouragement. I don't know who, who needs to hear this today. But the Lord has his hands on the parameters of all things. Suffering, politics, your life. You can trust him. Okay? Is that a reasonable word this morning? Okay. Let's go to the Lord and then we're going to ask him to instruct us. Okay? Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we recognize that you are the Lord. And we thank you so much for the sending of your son, Jesus Christ, who was born, died for our sin, and rose again. And we celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Christ with this church family. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, as we turn into it, we want to obey all that you've instructed. Help us to do that. In the end, Lord, we know that we cannot obey all things because we're not perfect. Only your son was. Thank you for your grace. And thank you, Lord, for each person that's here this morning by your sovereign plan. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and turn on Matthew chapter 6 as we continue this series. We've looked at several commands of Christ. To love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. We looked at the, the command of repentance, which isn't a really popular thing to talk about at church these days because that would suggest that you're going in the wrong way. <laughs> but to return from our sin, to turn and then cling to Christ. 
And then to have a faith that overcomes fear. All these are commands we've looked at, and this morning is no different. We're looking at another command. But we're going to be talking about one of the themes that is a tough one for many people, myself included. And I thought of this week asking the question, what's the one thing you wouldn't want Jesus to address in your life? Like, you, you want to talk about everything else and everybody else, but if it comes between you and him, you don't want him to put his finger on that thing. Do you have it? For many people, it's either politics, sex, or money. And this morning, we're talking about money. This might be my first, maybe my second time ever talking about money at Southbridge. And yet Jesus is speaking about it. And in our context, Matthew chapter 6, the sermon is actually a famous one called the Sermon on the Mount. I've been to the place where people believe that this sermon was delivered. There was a crowd around Jesus and Jesus called his disciples from among the crowd. So you have a crowd and you have his disciples listening to this message that begins in Matthew chapter 5. Behind him is, um, is a lake or is water. Then up the mountainside you could see then why he could, people could hear the message from the amplification from the lake. And Jesus is giving a very unique otherworldly message. It begins in Matthew chapter 5 and he's really pointing them to their need of the Lord. That people in and of themselves cannot save themselves. And so he begins by talking about what real happiness, true lasting happiness, where that's found. It comes from being poor in spirit. He begins in the beginning of the message. Poor in spirit means I bring nothing to the table. I need you, Lord. And all these things that he says will bring blessing or true happiness are like upside down to this world kind of things. So Jesus speaks about the most personal topics. This sermon reveals what God's laws truly intend, and that is to show that its demands are impossible. Read the book of Leviticus sometime, and think you can get through a day. Therefore exposing then all who have wrongly thought that they are in no need of a Savior. And in the end, this sermon is a call to true faith and salvation in Christ. Leaving everyone fully dependent on, on God. In fact, I want to walk you through it. Here's some of the topics. Talking about those that are true followers of him, that there'll be a salt and light in this world. Christ begins, continues by teaching about what the real fulfillment of the law looks like. Then he begins talking about murder, adultery, divorce, what our words ought to mean when we make them, our commitments, what his justice looks like, an eye for an eye, you say, but he says, turn your cheek. Then he talks about, you've heard it said that you should love your brother but hate your enemy, but I tell to you, the law is even bigger than that, that God's commands are greater that you should love your enemies. Impossible things. Then he talks about giving to the needy with a good motive, praying with a good motive, fasting with a good motive, and then we get to our text today. As you move through it, you might remember and have remembered learning some of these messages or part of this message. In fact, the story, this whole message ends with what wisdom looks like and what foolishness looks like. And wisdom is the one that takes these words of Christ and puts them into practice. The fool is the one that hears them and walks away as if they've never heard them. And that happened with Jesus over and over and over again. So this morning, our text begins in verse 19. I'll read for us and Jesus will instruct us. Ready? Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So we know that this is about money because Jesus actually says it's, it's about money. When you look at this passage, maybe the thought that I had real briefly, and that is, this passage doesn't apply to me because I don't have treasure. <laughs> well, you'd be wrong, and I'd be wrong. I just want to tell you a little bit about the people that are hearing this message live from Jesus on that mountainside are a people that live in a time where 
water is scarce, that there's limited income, that the average person is considered poor. They don't have closets full of clothes, and they don't have a refrigerator with lovely sauces and two-year-old pickles and your leftovers that you know you're never going to eat. <laughs> that just made me think that um, I heard a statistic that most Americans throw away 31 to 40% of their food. Add to that, these listeners would have had a religious tradition around them. The tradition being that, and a teaching that is that God gives earthly wealth to the truly righteous. That's what was taught. And Jesus says to them, what we just read, hey, don't serve money and invest in what is lasting. But he's saying it to a people that have nothing. Then if you move on to our text, he begins talking about worry. And who's good at that? We've talked about that before at Southbridge. He talks about don't worry about these things. In fact, three times he says, don't be anxious. Verse 25 says, don't be anxious about your life. Verse 31, don't be anxious about what you will eat, drink, or wear. Anyone nervous about and worry about those things? And verse 34, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Anyone worry about the future? But he's talking to a people that probably don't know where food's coming from for tomorrow. We may have people like that in our midst, and I hope that we, they would make that known so we could bless them. But most of us don't fit into this category, right? So the commands in our text are for the listener's benefit. It's an invitation them to break free from the addiction of false security and bigger idolatry. So we know, you know, that that Jesus taught about money a lot. In fact, Randy Elkhorn, who wrote The Treasure Principle, says that 15% of Jesus' teachings, if you put them all together, about 15% of his teachings were about money, which is more than hell and heaven combined his teachings on. And yet most times we invert that and make life more about heaven. And Jesus does something interesting here because he talks about both. But he talks about it a lot. And we see in our text that the topic is money, but the point of the topic is not about money. It's about something deeper than that. He's pointing that there's something more, but our money reflects some kind of relationship. And I just want to say up front, too, that God doesn't need your money, as if he's doing campaigns because heaven has a leaky roof, and he's just hoping that you could help him out a little bit. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need anything from you. I was thinking about that this past week. Last Sunday, of course, was Father's Day, and in my home, we have tradition where we, the kids give gifts and, uh, on Mother's Day or Father's Day, and Father's Day gifts are always interesting, aren't they? And usually it's cards, handmade cards, and it's usually, a lot of time the cards are, I have five children and ages 11 and under, and usually it's, on the card, it's just a drawing of me and this, just the one, not me and the five, which is a tell you, I need counseling for that. But sometimes they get strange, like there's a dragon, why is there a dragon on that? Oh, because I like him. Cool. It's like they drew a dragon and put us in it somewhere. But I got a really unique gift that I never, ever would have imagined. It was from my oldest, she's 11. Does anybody know what this is? I, when I, I'm, a pretty, I'm pretty good at anticipating gifts. I can't see through the packages, but it's close. And I, I like gifts. I, I receive love that way. But uh, I never, ever, 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 ever would have imagined this. And my 11-year-old was pumped to give it to me. And the way this works, it's called a narcissism stick. And it enables you to take pictures of yourself or your surroundings from a long distance. I'm going to do what's never been done at a church and take a selfie right now myself while preaching. Probably judgmental. That's good. 
Here's everybody. <laughs> Click. <laughs> like I said, it was something really funny. <laughs> okay, so that's not going to happen the rest of today. I don't need gifts from my children. What, poss- what could they possibly give me? What they've been given, my, so my oldest spent her own money on it. She has a commission. We call it commission, not allowance, because you know, if you don't work, you don't get paid. So when they work, they get paid. Hopefully that's a good rule, right? And so she spent her own money on that gift. She was, like, pumped about it. And I had to, like, drum up. Like, I was excited about her being excited, if I may be honest. It's kind of awkward for them to give of their own money to me because I'm the one that gave it to them. Do you see a connection? The Lord God does not need our tokens of appreciation, whether guilt-driven or through real love. He doesn't require them for himself as if he's deficient of something, but he uses them. But what he's really interested in between you and him is your relationship with him, the same but way better than me to my Mia, which means mine. The Father sent His Son to live and to die and to rise for something way more than our money, right? Our hearts, our lives. When we give, that, when we give Him that, we are free then to use what He gives us for the purposes that bring about life-changing relationships with Him, resulting then in more glory for Him. I received praise on Father's Day because it's decided that Father's Day happens and my children give gifts and I receive praise and glory through the gifts they give, as big or as little as they are, but according to their ability to give. We could end the message now, couldn't we? And think about then our giving. I want to say up front here too that this passage is not about a few things. Number one, it's not about, it's not denying physical needs. That's asceticism. It's a sect of Judaism that material things are bad. This message is not about that. This text is not denying the wisdom of savings or planning. All throughout scripture we see such. The battle comes from the tension then of what does wisdom suggest between saving and giving. Lastly, this text is not about denying the importance of work. Like work doesn't matter because money doesn't matter. It's not true. Work existed before sin came into the world, so work matters. So let's look at this. We'll go verse to verse together, as is our style, and consider our lives in light of the truth. Ready? Verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break it and steal. Stop. So we have a negative command. It starts with a negative. This phrase do not means um, do not have the habit of. It's actually a play in words. You could write it down this way. Treasure not for yourselves treasures. How's that going? See, through this command, Jesus is telling us that life is more than about the accumulation of stuff. And everyone here, I believe, knows that. You probably could write an essay on that. But how we live is differently than what we say we believe. And Christ's argument here is actually nothing to do with heaven yet. Did you catch that? But about the practicality, it's pragmatic actually, the practicality of the short life and the frail nature of stuff. I have a question. Do you think that there are people out there that own lots of stuff and that you would say is wealthy because you might not say yourself, you are, but someone else is. Are there people out there that have lots of stuff and have lots of money that are miserable? Have you heard of this phrase? Money can't buy but I'd sure like to try. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, it's a very popular passage that a lot of people like to put on those that have money when they themselves don't think they do. It says that the love of wealth is a root of all kinds of evil. 
The wealth, though, isn't evil, loved ones. Our view and motive and use of wealth can be evil. In reverse, our view, motive, and use of wealth can reveal how Jesus-like we really are. The religious elite believed that the Lord materially blessed those he loved and withheld from those he didn't. What a terrible teaching. So the pressure then in that time, and maybe even today for some, was to show God's love for self by building great earthly wealth. However, the scriptures teach us that this kind of wealth is fleeting just as life is. James tells us that it's a vapor, a mist. Here today, gone tomorrow. This is why Jesus says then, do not store up for yourselves that which can easily be taken. And the illustration is, is perfect. He's the master teacher. Don't store for yourselves what that moths can eat or rust decays. Your translation might say vermin or vermin can spoil or thieves can break in and steal. Jesus is saying that all your stuff you store up is subject for loss if it's this earthly stuff. A lot of people don't know this about me, but one of the things I really enjoy is history. And I really like reading about our presidents. I like reading about um, past leaders. And there's this um, uh, show, though, on Netflix I found that was um, really about all the, pre- all the presidents, the highs and lows of their presidency, the good things they did, the tough things that they did, the wrong things that they did. And it was quite honest because you got to learn about all the ones that aren't really um, as famous these days. One of my favorite eras to focus in on and really think through how would I live is the 1920s, the roaring 20s. The Roaring Twenties were such because it was a great time of invention and things were hustling and bustling coming out of World War I. Do you know this history? And we have a president that is focused on commerce and business. I think it was Coolidge. Might be off. And people were doing well, so people were celebrating. Some people believe this was the time of the invention of jazz, which actually, I don't know if you caught this or not, but Jed was playing jazz style in our first song today. He snuck it in there on you. People were partying and couldn't see that it would ever stop. In fact, in 1928, I think Hoover had given a quote in his presidential running when he became president, that within, we are within the grasp of ending poverty. That's awesome, isn't it? 1828, 1829, does anybody know what happens in 1829? Just say it. Stock market crash, we have the, what we call the Great Depression. Where's all the stuff? It has to go somewhere. Jesus tells the story of a man who had storehouses for himself and tore those down and built up bigger barns for himself over and over. But in time, he died. His life was demanded of him. And all the things that he prepared, what is of them now, Christ says. He concludes the story with this quote, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Why do we accumulate temporary treasure. Let's interact together. We're allowed to do this not only in summer, but all year round. Let's do this. Let's share some answers with one another and teach one another. Why are reasons why, one, not you, but someone might store up treasure for themselves? Can you shout a couple out? I don't believe in a God, so this is my life now. YOLO. Fear, yep. Pride. Mm -hmm. Greed. Greed, It's good to think about such things, isn't it? We do this because we want security, esteem, value, power, independence, pressure. My great-grandfather was a plant manager for Henry Ford. When Ford started to get going, my great-grandfather came over on the boat from England. He was born in 1892. He lived in 1992. 
His son, my grandfather, was a gauge reader, I believe, for Ford. And my dad worked for a short time and went into ministry. But my grandpa was kind of nervous because Ford will always exist. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 16 through 30, a wealthy man wants to inherit eternal life. So he comes to Jesus, good Lord, what must I do to enter the kingdom, to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, how's the commands going? Now, if you read this out of context, you might think that Jesus is saying being a good boy gets you to heaven, but Jesus is starting to push on the issues, okay? Well, I've obeyed all the commands, which is impossible, so there's pride. Well, that's good, Jesus says, going with him. He's so patient, <laughs> so better than me. That's good. Well, why don't you sell your stuff, give the money to the poor, not himself. Cult leaders take stuff for themselves, but Jesus is like, give that to the poor, and hey, you're free then to come follow me. Come on. The text tells us in that story that the young man, rich man, went away discouraged. He asked a question, got the answer, and didn't like it. Why? Eternal life is what he thinks he could have make the exchange for. He was unwilling to make Jesus his treasure. The young man was very religious, but Jesus exposed his heart's treasure. So the problem isn't the wealth, but that the young man treasured his riches and did not treasure what could he have, what he could have in Christ. So what's the problem? Randy Elkhorn again says in his book, The Treasure Principle, that I'm convinced that the greatest deterrent to giving, living open-handedly is this, the illusion that earth is our home. This is why we take on troubles in our mind. We act as if this, what's happening in the world, is all that's happening. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, which is the verse before the famous one about love of money being a root of all kinds of evil, says this, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I can't tell you how many pastors that I know in my life that have stolen from their church. It's wanting a little bit of both, isn't it? I want to teach kingdom stuff, but I don't know if I can trust God, so I need to take from the people that I'm leading. How about this? I challenge you this week to do some investigation. You can even Google this. Lives of people that won the lottery. Man, they get a lot of new friends. There was a special done by ESPN, I believe it was, of the lives of former NFL players and what their lives are like now, not only physically, but financially. Those friends and family are gone. Why? Wealth, for its own sake, is futile. The psalmist suggests such, or is blatant in Psalm chapter 49, verse 16. Can we look at that? Do not be overawed when a man grows rich, when the splendor of his house increases. For he will take nothing with him when he dies. His splendor will not descend with him. Though while he lived, he counted himself blessed, and men praise you when you prosper. He will join the generation of his fathers who will never see the light of life. A man who has riches without understanding is like a beast that perish. That's hard. So the wealth for its own sake is futile. There's no security in that. So what should we do? We have a negative command. Don't do this, Jesus says. It's going to crowd out your heart. He's actually, it's, it's a command of protection. Don't do it. So then what's the opposite? Look at the next verse, verse 20. A positive command. But do, do store up treasures for yourself. For yourself treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasures there, your heart will be also. Do store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. This is a specific instance then, a specific example 
of what Jesus is ultimately leading his listeners to truly pursue, which is stated actually a few verses ahead. Let's cheat ahead a little bit. Look at verse 33. After he talks about money, he talks about worrying about such things related to money. Then he says in verse 33, to anyone that will take up his call, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, that's the Lord, and all these things will be given to you as well. All the things that you need will be given to you. And your greatest need is Christ himself. To seek the kingdom then begins with seeking the king, that is Jesus. We talked about this, we looked at the Lord's Prayer several months ago when we talked about um, let your kingdom come, your will be done. It's to seek the king. And let me just add this, there's no point in abiding by these commands if you don't first trust in Jesus Christ as your savior. Then you're just a moralist. You give away all your money to set up a school for the poor in Africa. That is a kind thing to do. But it's not unto the glory of God. It's nothing. It's loss. So what are we going to do? We have to first then pursue the king. All this is about pursuing the king. We need our savior. This instruction then is not about, this instruction about wealth is not about how to get to heaven. Because how would you, how would you know where you stand? What if you were one dollar away from getting in? No. Jesus is our entrance into the kingdom. And then he invites us to live as kingdom citizens now with how we use our stuff that he provides, therefore being a steward. Seeking the kingdom means treasuring our Savior so that so much so that we are free to live open-handedly. Jesus calls his followers to an otherworldly view then of security, trusting in, in him, which leads to freedom from worry about wealth and unto a greater capacity to have passion for God's kingdom, which is revealed then in our desire to see Christ exalted in our sacrificial lives. So as good Bible students, we should ask the question, okay, Jesus, you've told us to store up treasures in heaven. How do we do that? This text doesn't tell us. I can't read all the passages that talk about reward. There are several. I had them and I cut them out because I thought we're, they want to go home and eat lunch too. But everything, so I'll just sum it up this way. Everything that one does as a Christian for others because Jesus, because of Jesus, is rewarded. So these are all statements in Scripture that have an award to them. Sharing the gospel, helping the poor or widow in need, praying, physical service, lending without hope of return, loving our neighbor, giving our money to gospel causes, teaching the Bible, contending for the faith, loving our enemies. These are all rewarded by God in eternity. And I'm using treasure and reward interchangeably at this time. No good deed, word, or thought will be overlooked. And this should just drive us to worship. How is it possible that our Heavenly Father has the capacity to know all people for all time, that he could register all those deeds? Amazing. There is no one like him. The scriptures tell us that for those that are in Jesus Christ, that you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared for you from a from long time ago, from the beginning of time, is a translation. In Matthew chapter 6, our context, I believe our context, indicates the use of wealth to store up treasure in heaven. Because he's talking about money. When we live sacrificially for Jesus' sake, we store up treasure in heaven then. Our degree of the commitment to God's kingdom is therefore expressed in how we manage any little or great wealth given to us by him. This same teaching is found in another gospel, in the gospel of Luke, but to it is attached Another suggestion. Look at Luke chapter 12, verse 32 through 34. It's the same teaching. Do not be afraid, little flock. That's so kind of him. (laughs) For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. That is completely gracious of the father. 
Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. Does that sound familiar? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In this command, we see that Jesus promotes, encourages people to give to the poor. That is another way whereby we might receive a real reward, a real treasure. Jesus cares about your ministry to the poor, and I don't want to miss that. If you look to the scriptures, old to new, you'll see about God's desire for his people to be a blessing to the poor. When they themselves are poor. We see in the New Testament a church that gave beyond their capacity. And we're blessed. So I want to challenge you with something this week. This is just an aside. A little actual literal application. And the application is this. I want you to to sell something of yours and give the proceeds to the poor, but don't tell anybody else about it. That would be putting this Luke text into literal practice. I challenge you. You don't have to report back to the church. We have 300 covenant members. How many of you did it and how did you do? You don't have to do that. Okay? In fact, the motive matters. In fact, before our text, Jesus talks about the motive of prayer, fasting, and giving. And he says, if you're doing it just to be approved by other people, you already have your award. You got that approval for whatever that's worth. But if you do it, your Father knows what's happening in secret. In fact, in verse 18 of our chapter, chapter 6 of Matthew, it says, And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Try it. It's fun. Or is it scary? God doesn't need our money, and that's true. And I shared that with you before. And I'd want to make sure that we're a church that says that. God doesn't need your money, however people do. God uses your willing hands then to bless and meet the needs of others. That's how he meets the needs of others most often, is through his people. So when you give freely because you trust Jesus to take care of you, you are laying up treasure in heaven. In the end then, it's perpetual blessing for the givers and receivers and all glory goes to God. Isn't that cool? Isn't it true, though, that um, what is sacrificial for one person is not sacrificial for another? So it's not really about amount. There's something more. In fact, in Luke chapter 21, we read that Jesus was observing people giving of their wealth to the temple treasury. Man, he's pretty nosy, isn't he? We don't want people messing with our money because we want people messing with our idols. And yet Jesus is watching people put money. I should stand over by the offering box sometime and just do this, see if you guys are uncomfortable. It would never work here, right? That would grow our church down to one person, me. <laughs> that was a ridiculous thought I just had. But Jesus is doing it, okay? He's talking to his 12. And he, he sees all these rich people putting their offering in. You can just imagine this, the money bags with the dollar signs on the side. That's what I see when Jesus tells the story. Then he also saw a poor widow who put in two very small copper coins, the text says. Then Jesus says, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. How is that possible? The math we used to have says that two is more than one and three is more than two. How can she have put in more if the literal amount is less? Because Jesus' math is very different. He says, all these people gave gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And I had two questions that came to my mind this week when considering that text. One is, why would she do that? And the second one was, why won't I do that? 
truth is, most Christians believe they're generous. Statistics have proven this. Polls have been done. Most people, when reporting upon themselves, believe they're a generous person. It's like when you ask people, are you a bad person? Most people say they're not a bad person. They've never murdered anybody, which really stinks for people that have murdered someone because that means there's no hope for them. That's the standard of goodness, by the way, not murder. Anyway, most people believe they're generous. But statistically, it's been proven that Christians give about 2.5% of their income. 25 but yet they think they give more. Most Christians report that they give more, like 15 or 20%. During the Great Depression, which I referenced before, Christians gave 3.3%. My great-grandpa ate large sandwiches in the Great Depression. My grandparents, my grandma wore the same shoes to my dad's wedding in 1973 that she wore to my wedding in 2001. And yet those people give 3.3% in that time, and Christians today give about 2.5%. Is that? 33 to 50% of church members, and they classified this by people that say, I am committed to my church, my church or my people, I'm committed to that vision, I've signed on to be a covenant member of this church. 33 to 50% of church members give nothing to support their own church. We'll come back to that. How about more, let's spin it positive. If Christians raise their giving, if each person that called themselves a born-again believer raised their giving just 7.5%, it would be about $165 billion more dollars to use. That's, that's fake numbers to me. Right? I'm dealing with ones, fives, tens, twenties, fifty. One time I saw a hundred. Oh man, it was glorious. $165 billion more. You might as well say kafillion, Christian Here's some things to think about with one year's of giving like that. $25 billion would relieve global hunger in about five years. Well, after five years of giving $165 billion, now you've got everything. $12 billion, let's, let's just cut, look on one issue. $12 billion more dollars from the 165 would eliminate illiteracy in five years, but who cares about that, right? $15 billion would solve the world's water and sanitation issues, but why does that matter if you've got it? That would leave us still, loved ones, with $100 plus billion dollars to figure out what to do with Great Commission exercises. After one year... These statistics were provided by generouschurch.com. So we lay up in treasures in heaven by investing in kingdom causes or life change. So let's ask the question, because maybe we're not convinced enough. Yeah, I hear Jesus saying, I shouldn't store up for stuff here. I understand that. It's just hard for me because I want what I want. But I think Jesus understands that because Jesus is very accommodating, I've been told. And then there's the positive command of I should give. And I do give some. I do give some. So I'm not like those people that don't give, like those statistics say. I would, I'd come out better than that. But if you told me, Jason, maybe what the treasures actually are, maybe I'd be more convinced, because right now I'm just thinking that people just want my money. Well, here's the treasures. Jesus does not identify the treasures in the text. However, if the kingdom dwells within those that are followers of Jesus, as Jesus says it does, you could say some rewards beyond salvation and his presence in your life begin now with more joy, peace, love, kindness. It's the fruit of God's character in our life as we abide in him. Being rich toward him, one translation says. But all the eternal rewards are hard to know. There's still a mystery, I believe. And we struggle with mystery because we want to know everything. But the scriptures do talk about rewards. It talks about crowns of glory. In Luke chapter 16, verse 9, we learn that another reward is believers. It's people. Because people are what lasts. They're souls, God, and people and these rewards, and then a new heaven, a new earth, and then positions of occupation in the kingdom. 
We learn in 16, chapter 9, verse Luke 16, 9, that believers are supposed to use their master's money in a way that will accrue friends for eternity, the scripture says. People are a treasure then. Are they a treasure to you? Me? By investing wealth in ways that bring people to salvation, those same people then, the scripture says, will be in the kingdom to welcome those who made such an investment. Is that convincing? Well, as long as I have my salvation, you know, Jason, as long as I have my salvation, I'm happy. I don't care about those, I don't care about those rewards or I don't care about heavenly treasure, you might say. And let me just admonish, let me just rebuke that thought notion, that form of humility. To say that is to deny Christ's right to use treasure to push us toward good deeds. It's like a claim of being above Christ's motivation. So don't, don't say that, okay? It is by God's grace that we're even invited to make such investments. Seeking his kingdom is by his grace, of course. And in, in the end, we see that it was all the grace of God alone that fueled our investments. Therefore, God is the one who is ultimate, ultimately receiving the glory. This is why when we are in the presence of Christ in the kingdom, the, text, the scriptures say that we will cast our crowns at his feet. And recognition that he was responsible for all our rewards. Revelation chapter 4 verse 10. So the question we ought to ask ourselves in light of that truth is, how many crowns is Christ deserving from me? I mean, why does Jesus even care about where we store our treasure? If God doesn't need our money, and Jesus is so accommodating, he loves everyone, why does he even care where we store the treasure? Good question. He answers that, verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The things most highly valued in your life, your job, your relationships, your phone, your savings account, your retirement, your hobby, your collections, the things most highly valued in your life occupy your heart. Our values control our direction. So if our hearts are not set on kingdom outcomes, or if they are, deeds follow. I am not saved by my deeds, but because I'm saved, there's deeds to be done. This verse then reveals what Jesus is really after. Your checkbook? No. What's he after, loved ones? Say it, please. Your heart. Our hearts. He desires that we'd be free of the things that seek to bind or capture our heart. There is a war for our worship. You were created for worship and every person worships. What is the object of that worship is different to each person. There's a war for that. So it's for our own good that that our heart is free to treasure Christ and, and the things of his kingdom. Owning wealth isn't wrong. The problem is when the wealth owns our heart. So that we have to live like this, like Scrooge. A favorite story of mine, and that he experiences this life change and all because he finds out the frailty and the, fun, the finality of his life. Now he's like this. Jesus gives us a helpful illustration next. But I think, when I think about this idea of a heart, I think about in, in marriage. And I've shared this illustration before, but if every Tuesday I gave my wife flowers, and she came to learn to expect that she gets flowers on Tuesdays. However, Tuesday night through Monday morning, I go on dates with other gals. Is that a problem? What's wrong with her? I provide for the family. I'm there. I give flowers every Tuesday. 
What's the problem, loved ones? She, she doesn't even probably care about, she wants my heart, right? Allegiance, commitment. Why does Jesus care about where our treasure is stored anyway if he owns all things? Because he wants our hearts. He gave his life that we might have a relationship with him. And yet he knows, as well as every person here that's thinking with me right now, knows that there's a, there's a war over our allegiance, there's a war over our heart. And the things of this world fool us and we're deceived and Christ is against that. So he's truth-telling so that we might be free and then inviting us to mission living so that others might be blessed through his blessing of us. Jesus gives a better illustration because he's the best teacher. Look at verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will, will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus is saying you can't have two kingdoms ruling your heart. The, the eye is the lamp that illuminates the inner person. If our eyes are fixed on earthly treasure for personal significance and earthly security, then the heart will likewise be full of darkness, he's saying. If our eyes are on King Jesus, who is the light of the world, he says of himself, we will see clearly and be full of the light. So as it relates to wealth, one can be physically seeing but spiritually blind. Jesus heals a man that was born blind. People ask him, who sinned his parents or he that he was born this way? And Jesus says, neither, not this time. It was so that God's glory could be in display. Then when the people see that the man was healed, people that were religious had struggles with that because they were spiritually blind. And Jesus tells them that and they hate him all the more. It's the same in our view of money. Are we spiritually blind when it comes to how we view money or our wealth or our home? Who cares about the size of a home that someone else has? And you want to put judgment on how big their house is. Forget about that. You look at your home. Are you using your home for the kingdom? Hospitality is praised in God's word. Go ahead then. How short-sighted to store money for self only to die and never have used it for heavenly purposes or to have been privileged to be invited to do even more. Worse, how self-deceived are we to have to try to have both? To try to store up for ourselves and also at the same time to try to store up as much as we can in the kingdom for the glory of God. And that's why Jesus says what he says in verse 24. Look at it again. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's money this time. You can't, you can't, Serve two kingdoms. In fact, that word serve doesn't mean like you're an employee. And I didn't share this with the first service. But the word actually means slave. You can't, you can't be a slave to both. Like an indented, indentured servitude. You can't have both. You can't have two masters. The contrast then here is between treasure and heaven on, on earth is a contrast of values, isn't it? That's why Jesus goes to the heart. Two treasures, two eyes, two masters. Either God is served with single-eyed devotion or he is not served at all. You cannot have a divided loyalty. Partial commitment to following Jesus is deep-seated commitment to idolatry, loved ones. So Christ is after our hearts. An undivided heart, Matthew chapter 5 tells us. A pure heart, Matthew chapter 5 tells us. 
a person who finds their identity in who Christ says they are through the work of Christ, by their faith in him, which was also a gift of God's grace. To find our value in him frees us up as opposed to finding our value in our culture, our politics, or our belongings. A person who is not intoxicated with the pursuit of more stuff, but seeks first the kingdom of God, that's who Jesus is looking for and inviting us to be. Just like the rich man, but unwilling. So, in light of this, it means that there's no room for Southbridge. There's no room for any of us to have greed or covetousness toward one another in our church. No room. Seeking first the kingdom is to choose Christ, which is in turn evidenced by love, service, and generosity. So, what would it take for us to be free with whatever we've been given? We were wondering before about that $165 billion. I'm not sure if all of Southbridge Covenant members gave just 7.5%. If we'd have $165 billion, I'd be shocked. I don't know who gives what at our church. I know what I give. What would it be like if our whole church was gripped by the radical open-handedness that Jesus taught? And if we tasted the freedom from fear and greed that Jesus affords us through his life, what do you think the outcome would be, not globally then, but just here in Raleigh, through this one church? It's fun to think about, but it's also like a bit discouraging because you don't know if it'll happen. Like growing up talking about going to Disney World. That sounds awesome. The rides and all that, but we never go. So we don't actually get to taste the experience of that. What would it be like if the 300 covenant members of Southbridge, so there's probably a thousand people that call Southbridge this church, but the 300 people that are really committed, they say, to this church gave like that. What would the ramifications be? What would the ramifications be for the poor in Raleigh? Or for the widows here in our body in true need? Or for the caged and orphans here and around the world? What would it be like for our missionaries that we've sent out from this body that are now in Madagascar and Panama, soon to be other places? It's exciting. What would it be like for them to be fully funded for their work so they wouldn't have to think about fundraising or support or whatever? What would it be like for our church to have a home of our own instead of paying the rent for somebody else? What would it be like for all of our strategic ministry partners in our area, Crisis Pregnancy Center, Hope Reigns, all of us, Raleigh Rescue Mission, all of them, if this body alone gave at such a rate? They wouldn't know what to do with the money. We'd have to, like, find new ways. We'd have to, like, find new ways. This can happen, but only as we become more convinced of Christ's reign and that we can trust in him when we find joy in giving to kingdom causes for God's glory. Jesus speaks about it so much because he knows it's so dear, it's so personal. Money's personal because it's usually an idol. We don't want people messing with our idols, and yet here's Jesus doing that. I think Southbridge people are generous people. If I were to be interviewed about it, I don't know what people give. I don't know what people make. I know that we have all demographics in our church, I think, that represent Raleigh. I'll start with me, right? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning and thank you for your word, for each person that's here by your sovereign hand and plan. Lord, we, as we've considered your commands thus far to love you and to love others and to 
repent, to be a people that turn from sin and selfishness and turn and cling to you as our Father, God, help us. To be a people that have a faith that is quick to overcome any fear, God, help us. Give us a faith that can only come from you. Help us with our unbelief. And Lord, for the clumsiness of our church and us as, as leaders, Lord, as we try to come together to bless you, to, to glorify you with our lives, and Lord, our, we're so quick to put our eyes on other things other than you, or on each other and what each other own, or what each other gives or sacrifices. God, help us to partner with your spirit where you, whereby you work in us and that we simply obey. Lord, I pray, God, that we would abide well by, these, by this teaching and we'd sense the freedom and grace that comes from such. Thank you for your word. Go before us, Lord, that we might follow you in love and lead well, serve well, give well. We long for your return. And until then, Lord, we press on by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.